thanks for being back with us and for doing this again. I, I'm sure you've heard uh, Michael Mahoney mentioned this morning that, uh, that Pastor John is going to be doing a Q&A next Sunday night and uh, that they're going to be doing, I think, regular evening service broadcasts as well. So uh, if we continue to do this, we will have to find another time slot, which we'll talk about during the week. Prop, you know, I, I'd expect that one option is the regular Grace Lifetime at 830 on Sunday morning or maybe on a Wednesday night or something like that to sort of break up the week. But we'll, uh, we'll talk about that, maybe do another poll so you can vote and uh, that'll be good. Well, a lot of questions last week that we just didn't answer. And there were even uh, new questions that came in this week. And I love it. I, I love Q and A's. I, I love to be able to hear from you all and to be able to address the issues that are on your mind. I feel like that's a, a really important way to shepherd the the flock. And especially now we want you guys to have access to us. Um, even when we can't be uh, approached personally, you know, physically and in person, but uh, still some, some questions about uh, the coronavirus, some questions about uh, Easter passion week, resurrection Sunday, some theology questions, some Bible interpretation questions. We'll try to, we'll try to get them in, but if we don't get to your question tonight, uh, we will, do our best to get to it next time. Well, uh, first question came earlier in the week. And so it says, well, we are certainly trusting in God's plan and providence, but that known, how careful should we try to be with respect to wise health stewardship? Should we be wearing masks and gloves and uh, so on when we, when we leave the house? And I think even since that question was asked, <laughs> I think the government made that mandatory, at least in, in the LA city. I think that that became mandatory. Uh, and then certain um, stores that I, I heard like grocery stores won't let you in without a mask. Uh, so it's amazing how, how quickly things change in a couple of days. Is that your understanding, Phil? Do you have any thoughts about wearing masks and gloves? Yeah. In fact, Darlene makes me wear a mask now when I go out. She started doing that about Wednesday, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, she she watches this stuff and uh, the scarier the news becomes, the more she cracks down on it. You know, the question seems to be asking, what what is our duty as Christians? And my answer to this question would be it's a matter of wisdom more than it is sin, you know, or or righteousness. Um, I think you should do the wisest thing you can do. And and given the fact that none of us really knows how long this is going to last, how contagious it is, how close we are to the infection or whatever, it's always good to be prudent. Uh, I mean, just read the book of Proverbs. And um, what Scripture teaches us about wisdom is in a situation like this, it's it's better to be safe rather than sorry. I, I, there's no reason to sort of flaunt your the fact that you're a believer and you know God is sovereign, but we're not to put him to the test either realizing God is sovereign. He, he also gives us certain responsibilities and one of them is to walk in wisdom. And uh, I would say until, until we know more about the potential scope and infectiousness of, of the uh, virus, it's, it's a wise thing I think to, uh, to listen to what, the experts are saying, and they may be wrong. I, I, I understand that. I also uh, am sympathetic with people who are uh, a bit suspicious that there are characters 
in governmental offices who are attempting to use this crisis to gain more power for themselves, to uh, grow the size of government, all of that. I, I realize that. I understand all of that. I don't want to make it easy for them. But on the other hand, I think it's folly to sort of thumb your nose at uh, the prevailing medical wisdom, even if there's a possibility it might be wrong. You don't know that it's wrong and you don't know that it's right. So um, I think it's I think it's just good to to listen to the experts and let them, you know, let them make the decision rather than you making your own uninformed decision. Yeah. I mean, at this, at this point, it's sort of like, you know, cost benefit, right? Like what are you gaining by not wearing the mask? I guess you're gaining the, uh, you know, the, the comfort or the ease of not having to, to find a mask to, to put it on, to wash it, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah, it's kind of like the seatbelts in your cars. I'm old enough that I grew up in an era where cars didn't even have seatbelts. It wasn't an option when I was a little kid, you know. And uh, even as a probably three-year-old, I was riding in the front seat of my dad's car, standing up with no seatbelt. You'd put somebody in prison for letting a kid do that today because we've learned that there are safer ways to, to navigate the roads. I think this is a little like that. It's annoying. It was annoying to me when they first made seatbelt laws. You sort of, you know, get in the habit of, of doing it and realize the, the wisdom of it. And as long as there's a contagion floating around there that is killing people, mm. probably wise to wear a mask. Yeah. Should we as Christians repent for our country and ask God to heal this land? I heard that the pastor in Wuhan cried out to ask all churches to fast and pray for them from the very beginning. So should we repent for America and ask God to heal our land? I don't think you can repent for someone else's sin. So you can't really repent for the entire nation. I think fasting and prayer for for people to repent is always a good idea. Um, Praying for revival. um, I think we should always want to see the spirit of God sort of move through our nation and bring a lot of people to faith. And in a crisis like this, I think we're, we're maybe more strongly motivated to do that. It's a good thing to do. It's what scripture commands us to do, to make prayers for all men. Uh, and that goes from, from this, you know, the head of the government on down. Uh, so yeah, pray for them fast for them. You can't repent for them. Yeah. I think that's that's just well said, right? Quick and easy. I won't add anything to that. Here's one that's a little bit more involved. What would what would what are some ways that singles or widows can fight loneliness, depression, or anxiety during these isolated days at home? I think that's a really good question. It's a thoughtful question, one that requires some thought. And you know, I think that I think obviously the question I think is designed to to speak of believers, right? It's designed for for this uh, arena. And so we're talking about professing believers and members of Grace Church. But for those who, you know, who live alone or, um, yeah, you know, how how is it that they can in a time where they're required not to have the kind of interaction that they might have uh, elsewhere, you know, with people who are not their immediate family, how can they battle that? And I think one, one way I would say is to do things like this, is to uh, be a part of the Facebook group and, and, and play sermons and listen to live videos and send in questions and listen to Q and A's and interact and have, and get prayer requests from people. And uh, of course, you know, 
in our modern day, you know, Facebook provides a great interactive platform, but maybe for those who are older and, and are not necessarily on the social media as much, or at least not as adept at it, call people, you know, make, make it a thing that, you know, uh, for a certain number of hours a day, you're just going to be setting aside time to, to call folks. And, and if you're getting those calls, I would say you can serve your brothers and sisters in this time by uh, setting time aside when those calls come in and just having those conversations. If you're tempted to depression and anxiety, um, you know, tell, tell that person that, you know, call somebody and just say, look, we've never really, maybe we've never really had an an extremely deep conversation before, but uh, after finding out how they're doing and telling them how you're doing, you can just say, look, one of the things that I'm struggling with is just, I'm, I'm feeling lonely. And, uh, you know, you can just say, would you, would you speak truth to me? Uh, would you just speak truth from the word of God that would help me battle, uh, my feeling lonely? Um, tell me the truth about how Christ is with me. Tell me the truth about how he's left his spirit to dwell in us. Tell me the truth about how he, uh, the father ministers his comforts, um, in our affliction. Tell me the truth about how the fellowship of Christ um, uh, meets with us in our sufferings. Just, just speak truth to me so that I can bathe my mind in the scripture and, and, and start retraining my affections to, uh, to feel in accordance with the truth that I know and believe. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a question that really tugs at the strings of my heart. Uh, I, I can't speak from firsthand experience because I have Darlene here, and uh, we, we actually s- stole a few of our grandchildren to, to keep overnight and, and for tomorrow. Uh, this is a little easier for us, I admit, than someone who lives alone. But I deal with my own father, who is 95, and uh, he's legally blind and mostly deaf, and so there's not much he can do. He's not on social media. He 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 actually lives in a assisted care place and two times now in the past three weeks they've had people come down with colds nobody thankfully has gotten the the coronavirus yet in the place where he stays but when someone even has a fever they pretty much forbid the residents to even leave their room so here's my dad in a room uh pretty much by himself all day and just watching the agony of his boredom and loneliness, it just kills me. I've got a computer in his room that I can control remotely so I can call him up and talk face to face. He can see enough to, to see the shape of my image on his, on his screen and we can talk. But in between those times when we talk, I know the loneliness is just agony for him. And uh, so I feel for people who are going through that and I don't know any easy answer uh, other than, like you said, Mike, the the reminder we get from Christ, who says, "I will never leave you or forsake you." He he's always there. Uh, but also, I think just the fact that someone raises that question ought to be a reminder to the rest of us that we have a duty. I mean, that same passage where it says, "Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together," and yet we know there are extraordinary times if you're sick or when there's a plague, you know, going around where we, we temporarily suspend the assembling of ourselves together. But right in that context, it also says that it's our duty to, 
exhort one another and to encourage one another to love and good works, that duty, it doesn't get suspended. And so for the rest of us who maybe aren't feeling that loneliness, I think we ought to be more diligent than ever to reach out to people who we know are alone and, and uh, try to keep that personal contact going. I mean, that's why we're here doing a live stream Q and a, it's one of the reasons. Yeah. And I'll say, I'll say, please, you know, this is as your pastors, right? We, if that's you, uh, if you just feel like you can't get anybody else on the phone or you don't want anybody else on the phone, maybe you just prefer to talk to us, please just call, send an email, send a message, yeah. some sort of something. That's right. I occasionally I'll talk to people and and they'll say, well, I didn't want to bother you or I didn't think I could call you. I know you're busy and all that. I'm never too busy for people in grace life. And if you, if you just want to talk, uh, I'm not going to give my phone number on, on Facebook, but if you want my phone number, email me. My email is phil at spurgeon.org or phil at gty.org. Either of those email addresses works. Email me and uh, ask me or send me a message on Facebook. Ask me for my cell phone number. You can have it. And uh, even if you can't, if you don't want to call, you can text me, whatever. I love, love to hear from Grace Life people. Yeah. My, you, know, you can email me as well, mricardi at gracechurch.org. And my, I think my cell number is in the directory. Um, I don't have as many wild-eyed crazies coming after me like Phil does. So he's amassed some, uh, some fun friends over the years. Uh, so my, my phone number is in the directory. I think my, uh, my phone number, my home phone number might be in the directory. I okay. think I kept it in there, but uh, we had internet trouble about three weeks ago and the guy who came out to fix it, fixed it by switching my landlines. So the number he's got hooked up to my phone right now is not the one that's in the directory. I got to get that fixed, but AT&T isn't answering their customer service lines right now. So I'll eventually get it fixed. But if you, if you need to talk to me, uh, just email me and I will send you my cell phone number. And, and I would say one last thing on this in no way, you know, making light of it or, or thinking that I'm about to say something that you don't know already. But just to recognize that don't, don't also think that uh, living alone is a, a great, um, I don't know, what, what's the right word? It's not all bad. And it, you might have an opportunity for communion with Christ that those of us who have folks, you know, running around in the house with us and, and people to talk to, that we might not realize that we have. Um, it's, it's not that people living with you is a distraction, but it can be that you don't realize how much time you do actually have in a day that could be spent with Christ and pressing into communion with him and in prayer and in study and in meditation on the truth. I mean, you know, if Jesus was here, I don't, I don't think it would, it would matter any, who anybody, if anybody else was here, no matter who they were, your wife, your kids, you know, we, we would like to think at least that we're Mary's and not Martha's, and that we would sit at the feet of Jesus, and he, and he would have our undivided attention. And we think to ourselves, you know, if he were here, man, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, the reality is, he is here. He is in our hearts. He's, he's dwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he invites us to that kind of communion. And I would just say that for those of you who might be tempted to, to, be, to be discouraged 
by the fact that you, you you don't have other people in your house during this you know time of isolation to to recognize the advantage that might be over the rest of us who do to just having undivided quiet time uh, to pursue Christ. Read the Psalms, pray the Psalms, meditate uh, on the Psalms. You know, read the gospel narratives. Imagine yourself there with Christ and listening as Peter asks his silly questions and as John leans his head on the bosom of Christ. And as, you know, Jesus returns from Gethsemane the three times to say, couldn't you watch and pray for an hour? Uh, And and as they arrest him and, and as he goes and so on, put yourself in the narrative and just imagine that you're just a, a fly on the wall. You're part of the crowd and, and, and observe Christ and, and, and admire him and aim to imitate him and, uh, and pray to him as you do it. I mean, there's a sense in which if we had the discipline, uh, the notion of three, four hours a day with Christ in meditation and prayer and in the scriptures is a, a glorious privilege. And when you, when you multiply not just the scripture, but then good books on the scripture. I mean, we've got more than we can handle in a certain in a certain manner of speaking. John Owen, the glory of Christ, Hugh Martin, the shadow of Calvary, John Calvin, Christ crucified and risen. All these books that that I've just picked up since you know today. Um, John Flavel's Fountain of Life, The Pilgrim's Progress. There are all these these wonderful opportunities for reflection and meditation, and we're always so hurried because okay, I got to get my time in, and then I got to go and do the next thing. Well, we don't have to do that, and let's not squander this time of unhurriedness, uh, both for those of us who have families at home and those of us who don't. You know, this is this is a time to press into communion with Christ in ways that maybe we haven't been able to before. So, just just an encouragement that way. I know you do that already, but uh, just an encouragement. All right, here's a an interesting question. It's a similar topic, but a little bit of a different feel. So a lot of folks are seriously fixated and upset about government overreach over COVID-19. Some in the reform camp even appear ready to revolt, like to literally rebel and engage in civil disobedience and so on. But now here's the, the question turns this way. Both amillennialists and premillennialists agree on the world getting worse and not better. Obviously, postmillennialists believe it's getting better. But does, does one eschatological position, amill versus premill, influence that kind of thinking more than the other the readiness to 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 rebel versus the the uh, or be civilly disobedient versus the you know romans 13 let's just obey uh sort of a thing well yeah it does uh, it seems to me that the the people who are currently sort of taking the radical position that uh, Romans 13 doesn't apply to the church, doesn't apply to us as Christians. Uh, they tend to be post-millennialists. Uh, I, there's something in the post-millennialist attitude, I think, that fosters a, a desire for political power um, that sort of, I think, goes against what Jesus said when he, when he said, you know that the rulers of the world uh, desire to lord it over you, but he said, it shall not be so among you. This isn't really a, a Christian attitude. Uh, I, and, and, you know, I don't like to argue uh, with people over their eschatological position, but the one position that I, that I strongly uh, reject and would expend some energy trying to talk people out of is post-millennialism. Mm. Because uh, I, I think post-millennialism does uh, give people a sort of, 
heady desire for political power that I think is inconsistent with the, the goals of the gospel. Yeah, because for theonomists, for those who those postmillennialists who believe in the, the fact that that we should be uh, instituting the Mosaic Civil Code in our nation, that's the way that that's going to happen. Is is we win the culture war, and uh, we you know society gradually becomes more and more Christian until Christ feels like he's ready to return. But what about between Amil and Premil? If we were to take postmill out of it, are Amils or Premils more apt to rebel or submit? Not that I can see, not necessarily. I know some I rebellious premillennialists too. Yeah, that's true. I don't think there's anything in the theologies themselves that would give one uh, to a readiness to be civilly disobedient uh, versus another. I mean, maybe if you said, well, the con- maybe if your brand of amillennialism is, well, the kingdom is here now, and to the extent that we don't see the kingdom in our present experience looking like the kingdom that is promised in the scriptures, to that extent we have to conform society to those kingdom-like conditions. That's what Tim Keller would call optimistic amillennialism. Usually uh, amillennialists and premillennialists are, are, what, are what's called eschatological pessimists, uh, not in the sense that we think that everything is terrible and we're all, you know, uh, it's all just, you know, worth nothing. What's the use, but that, no, but that the, the society in the world is getting worse and worse until Jesus comes back, not better and better. Yeah, in fact, those are the optimists. I would, I would clarify that and say, I am, I am not pessimistic about the future. Right. I am, I am uh, skeptical of humanity's ability to find its own way. Mm. Uh, but you know, one of the things my premillennialism assures me of is that in the end, Christ will conquer all his enemies and, uh, evil will be defeated by good and, uh, everything's going to be great in the end. So I'm, I'm not really a pessimist, although yeah. that is, that's a favorite accusation, I think of, uh, of my post-millennial friends. Uh, oh, you're just a pessimist because your your premillennialism tells you that the world is getting worse and worse. Actually, the newspaper tells me the world is getting worse and worse. Yeah. So, you know, in the mouth of two witnesses, let a thing be established. Yeah. Good. What about uh, praying, pleading the blood of Jesus? And asking for the plague to pass over all of our homes. Exodus twelve thirteen talks about the Passover and the angel of death sparing the homes that the blood of the lamb was on. Since Jesus is our Passover lamb, should we be pleading the blood and saying, Lord, spare this house from the coronavirus? Yeah, that sounds like charismatic superstition to me. There, There is no magical power in pleading the blood the the blood of christ is not an incantation you can say to to ward off trouble it's not like an amulet that you wear around your neck or or whatever the blood of christ that biblical phrase is a reference to the atoning work of christ which um you know charismatics are fond of pointing out texts that talk about healing and they say there is healing in the atonement and I agree, there is healing in the atonement, but it's the ultimate healing that we'll experience when we have glorified bodies. Between now and then, every one of us is going to die. 
unless Christ returns first. Um, and, and so there's no guarantee of uh, physical healing of our earthly infirmities in the atonement uh, until the, until the very end of all things, when, when our bodies are resurrected and glorified in the yeah. meantime, you know, the, the, it rains on the just and the unjust and plagues affect the just and the unjust. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, in the Passover, the, the people of God, Israel, were given a specific command. Look, the angel of death is going to come and destroy the firstborn in Israel because Pharaoh is rebelling against God's prophet and, and, and not letting his people go. And uh, in order to, to show my judgment upon him, I'm going to kill every firstborn um, you know, child and animal in Egypt. And in order for you to be protected, you do this. And that's get the lamb, you know, slay it, eat it, put its door, its blood on your doorpost, and then the destroyer will pass over you. You know, we've been given no such promise, no such instruction. The blood of Christ has not been promised to us to um, to heal, you know, uh, our diseases before our glorified bodies. It's not you know, the atonement has not been okay. You know, plead the blood, and so then you won't get sick. You know, I mean, like. That kind, that kind of garbage. I mean, and it is, it is garbage. You know, is just such an, it's such an overrealized triumphalism that doesn't, that doesn't take into account the fact that Jesus was the, the man of sorrows. He was the chiefest sufferer in history, and then Paul was probably, you know, right behind him. He just uh, because you read all those, those suffering uh, accounts, you know. A night and a day in the deep, thir- five times, 39 lashes, beaten with rods, imprisonments, and all these things. And, you know, Peter is crucified upside down. You know, John is exiled to Patmos. Some of the other uh, apostles are boiled in oil and beheaded, you know. And then you have the martyrs throughout the his- throughout history. I mean, Tyndale, uh, you know, being martyred. John Huss. These are the most faithful men in the history of the world. And what kind, I mean, what kind of theology says, oh, you know, they should have pleaded the blood and then they would have been healthy and prosperous and there would have been no affliction that brought, that was brought their way. So that, that is, I think, just a charismatic, almost word faith kind of understanding of the atonement of Christ that we need to recognize we've been given no such promise. The promise we've been given is trust in the shed blood of Christ and your sins will be forgiven, not your your health will be always in, in uh, you know, you not that you always be in great health. Yeah, I'm glad you said that too. And and the most important part of what you said was right at the very beginning, where there's no command in Scripture to do that. I called it superstition, and that is what distinguishes religious superstition from true Christianity. Uh, it, it does it have a biblical basis? Is there a command to do this? And if not, and and you're saying words or or doing something that you think, you know, should have a magical effect. That's just sheer superstition. Moving on. What, what opportunities for evangelism have you had? sounds like me and you, Phil, during this time of quarantine. And how would you counsel Grace Life members to evangelize? Since people are afraid of being infected, should we not do one-on-one face-to-face evangelism like door-to-door? Should we just take advantage of the opportunities that we have at work if we're still going to work? or family members or neighbors that we know? Uh, would you recommend or not recommend open-air preaching like at a Costco during this time? Why or why not? Yeah, um, you, you obviously shouldn't be handing people tracts and things yeah. like this. 
you know, mm-hmm. things that could actually it could literally actually be harmful to them if you passed a, a, a virus to them or whatever. There's a guy in our neighborhood who has gone around. You've seen him, I'm sure, Mike, because you live just right down the street from me. As you turn off Isabella Parkway, the, the street that I live on, uh, as you come to the end of it, you're facing a, an empty field that has a little gate there, a fence or something. And somebody has put a sign with the gospel on that fence. And uh, and they're scattered, I noticed, all around our neighborhood. And mm. uh, Darlene and I were driving to the post office the other day and passed the guy who I think did it. Uh, he's a guy I've seen for years standing on street corners holding signs that say, you know, Bible verses or call for repentance or whatever. Seems like that's his ministry. And he had one of these signs that was printed in the similar font and style of this stuff that's hanging around our neighborhood. Not a bad idea. Uh, he doesn't infect anybody doing that. And yet he's put up these reminders, you know, that at the very least remind people they are accountable to God. Uh, I commend him for doing that. I wish I'd thought of it. Um, yeah. So. I'd say personally, you know, obviously opportunities with neighbors as they're out and, and speaking um, opportunities on social media to be answering questions. Um, you know, I have, you know, I, when I preach, I always, you know, include the gospel. Um, so, I mean, those are, those are sort of the opportunities that I've, I've had limited to me is, yeah, family. I mean, just this morning, I, you know, I had a, my cousin say, you know, uh, happy Easter and, and he lives in Redondo beach and he sent me a picture of a beautiful shot of the, the, the beach, but also the, um, you know, the, a sign that says, you know, the, Redondo Beach closed by order of the, the government or whatever it said. And I said, uh, I wrote him back and said, Hey, happy Easter to you too. Uh, the beach is closed, but heaven is open. Christ is risen, you know, and those are little things, you know, especially the fact that it's Easter and you can, you can mingle that with the, the, the issue, you know, the, that's at hand. But yeah. It's, I think taking time to have conversations with the people who are within reach, I would not say go door to door. I think that if you go door to door, you're going to just, people are going to look at you like, what, you know, what are you doing? And all, and already you're going to have, uh, you know, a fight to, to, to a battle to fight that you don't need to have. Um, you know, as to open air preaching, I mean, I, I think in general that um, you shouldn't be doing open air preaching unless you have uh, the, the blessing of your overseers. And so if there are those of you who are just of a mind to get up and start preaching in the open air, I, we would love to know about that and uh, make sure that that uh, you're equipped to do that and and uh, that you meet the qualifications that Scripture uh, let, lays on all of us to do that. Um, but you know, in, in in general, I mean, in theory, Phil, I mean, would you say that somebody who is qualified, you know, getting a, a an amplifier and standing in the line at Costco with all the the long line of of uh, shopping carts waiting to get in? Is that an effective or an advisable method of evangelism? Well, uh, you know, people in the Costco line are already annoyed. So <laughs> that might not be the place I would choose to go to do open air evangelism. On the other hand, I think that we, we mentioned this last week that one of the effects of the pandemic has been to make people more open than ever to uh, the gospel. They're, they're thinking more frequently and more clearly about their own mortality right now. They're open to the gospel. 
Uh, and I know that because just in my incoming email over the past three weeks, I have received more messages from people who are saying things like, I'm not sure of my salvation. Can you help me? People yeah. on Twitter who, who tweet at me and say, I, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. How can I know? I mean, it's that doesn't happen in normal times, at least not with the sort of frequency that I've seen it in the last three weeks. So, uh, so I know there are people who, if they know you're a believer and that you're you're settled in your own assurance, they're going to come to you and ask for help in at a level that uh, th- that doesn't usually happen. So, you know. Uh, more important even than open air preaching, I think for most people is to be sure that your friends and neighbors know that you're not fearful of what might happen when you die, that you know Christ. And uh, you might be surprised how many of them will ask you a reason for the hope that's in you. Yeah. And I would just say now's not the time to be squeamish. You know, I mean, now's, now's not the time to be terribly embarrassed Now's the time to be bold. Now's the time to be speaking up more uh, uh, intensely because, you know, people are listening more. And, and, and in a sense, it's a little bit more forgivable, right? Because in the eyes of the world, like, okay, this person really believes what, they, what they're saying. And given that there is a, a genuine pandemic going on and that people are dying, um, you know, they feel the urgency to, to pre- preach this message. You know, don't be sensationalistic. Don't be, you know, tinfoil hat, you know, kind of crazy open air preacher. Be, be loving, be a dignified is one of the, the character qualities for a deacon or an elder. And First Timothy 3, uh, I think it's 3 verse 10. You, you want to be dignified in the way that you do it. You don't want to be rude or obnoxious, but, but to be poignant and incisive and, and sober and trying to bring these things to bear. Now is not the time for the, the lifestyle evangelism uh, kind of a thing. Now is the time for the proclamation evangelism. And while I wouldn't counsel you to give somebody a tract or to knock on their door, you know, it, as God in his providence gives you opportunities to speak to your neighbors or to your social media friends and connections or to folks at your job, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would encourage each of you to be even more bold than you have been because this is the situation calls for it. That was a good question. All right. Well, it's, it's resurrection Sunday. It's just been passion week. And one of the things that, uh, that happens during this time is that um, familiar sermons get preached, right? The, the same crowd that uh, sang Hosanna to Jesus at the triumphal entry was crying, crucify him by the end of the week. Well, there are those who would say, well, it's not quite the same crowd. Uh, And, but that's a, that's a a sermon point that gets preached a lot on uh, Palm Sunday or, or Good Friday or something like that. Uh, one of those texts uh, is John 19.30. And I've been thinking about this a lot in the last several days. And if you've been following me on social media, you, you know I've been thinking about it because I've posted about it. Um, but there are some who say that when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, that what he doesn't mean to say, what, what I think a lot of us intuitively believe him to have meant, that the work of redemption is done, atonement has been accomplished, you know, the, the work of my ministry is finished, I, I'm done and I can go back to, you know, my father at this point. That it doesn't mean that atonement is done, but what it means is that uh, the scripture uh, has been fulfilled with respect to 
uh, messianic prophecy. And they'll point to the fact that two verses earlier in John nineteen twenty eight, that says, after this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished, which is the same word for finished, uh, teleao, to fulfill the scripture also, teleao, uh, said, I am thirsty. And so it is finished, is teleao, all things were accomplished, and the scripture would be fulfilled. Both of those words are teleao. So really all Jesus is saying when he says it is finished is uh, prophecy is being fulfilled. No, no reference to atonement. What would you say about that, Phil? Yeah, no, I would say uh, he means much more than that all the scriptures are fulfilled. He does mean that, uh, but he means much more than that. And included in, in, in that idea that all the scriptures are fulfilled is the promise of atonement. Uh, I mean, if all the scriptures are fulfilled, and that includes Isaiah 53, then it means surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And when Peter says things like he bore in his own body our sins on the tree, and Paul uses the expression the cross uh, as a synonym for the atoning work of Christ, uh, you, you, you just simply cannot divorce the completion of the atonement from what Jesus is meaning when he says it is finished. Yeah. Matthew. Henry- and in fact, I think it's a dangerous thing to, to, uh, to suggest that he doesn't have the atonement in view, because then what are you saying that the atonement, the atoning work isn't finished, that there's still more to do that there, there's maybe something we have to add to the work of Christ. That just goes against everything scripture says about the, the, completed work of christ yeah matthew henry in his commentary on the whole bible on this passage lists no fewer than eight things that uh, christ means by it is finished one uh the malice and enmity of his persecutors had now done their worst uh it is finished that the counsel and commandment of his father concerning his sufferings were now fulfilled uh in other words the, the plan has been completed it is finished that, number three, all the, that all the types and prophecies of the Old Testament which pointed at the sufferings of Messiah were accomplished and answered. So scripture is fulfilled. It is finished, that is, that the ceremonial laws abolished, which we see from the veil being torn from top to bottom. It is finished in that sin is finished, which is a reference to Daniel 9.24, that the Messiah is going to come after the 69th week and he's going to make an end of sin and finish the transgression, right? Um, number six, it is finished that his sufferings were now finished, right? He, he, his, his sufferings are, are over. He's, he's headed to death and, and going to, to rise from the grave. Seven, it's finished that his life is finished, and he's going to breathe his last. And eight, it is finished that the work of man's redemption and salvation is completed. So, I mean, it's a pregnant little it, that it. Spurgeon says, you know, that you, you could you never estimate how much is in that it. The more you, you meditate on it, the the larger and larger it grows. And I think that that's right. I think that trying to say it's not atonement, it's merely prophecy is a false dichotomy, precisely what Phil said, because the prophecies are <laughs> with respect to the atonement of Messiah. And the reality is that uh, atonement, it, you know, the scripture, I, I posted this on my Facebook wall. I would encourage you guys to, to check it out. I also posted it in the, in the Grace Life group group. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. But all the things that are said to be accomplished on the cross, in his body, by his blood, in his death, right? Atonement is not, you know, somewhere other than the cross. 
right? He bore our sins in his body on the cross, Phil mentioned, 1 Peter 2.24. Hebrews 9.26, now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin, to take sin away, expiation, by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of himself, where was that? It was on the cross. Paul says that Christ was put, was put forth or displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And so where is wrath satisfied? It's in the, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And where was his blood shed? On the cross. Romans 5 says that uh, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So even there, right, even this notion of reconciliation, people think that reconciliation can't genuinely be said to have taken place between God and man until we actually come into possession of faith and justifying righteousness. Because, well, we're at enmity with God before we belong to him. Now, that's true. But scripture speaks of reconciliation as having been accomplished on the cross. Through the death of his son, we've been reconciled. Not through the faith of the sinner, we've been reconciled. And so while we, there's a, a distinction to make between accomplishment and application of the benefits that Christ has purchased for us, uh, Scripture with one voice testifies to the efficacy of the cross, not to the provisionality of the cross, or, or that the cross is some sort of entree to some later work of atonement. That is, that is a view of the atonement, by the way, by the Socinians, by those arch-heretics of the 17th century who denied the Trinity, who denied penal substitutionary atonement, and in their denial of the notion that the atonement was a genuine sacrifice, that Christ was, was paying the penalty for our sins, they said, well, he, he's not a priest. His priesthood doesn't begin until he goes into the heavenly throne room of God, and that's where he sprinkles his blood and intercedes for us. And that's where atonement and it gets made or finished or whatever. And, th- and that's just absolutely heretical. It's false. The notion that atonement is not done until Christ does something after the cross runs roughshod over all those texts. And one, yes. one more, Hebrews 9.15 the, uh, says, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions. Not an, a, a, a heavenly intercession or a resurrection or, or, or a <clears throat> taken place for the redemption of the transgressions. Though, of course, that has to happen. But the emphasis that the scripture places on it is, a death has taken place for redemption. So we're redeemed by death. We're, wrath is satisfied by blood. In fact, that becomes a, uh, a major theme in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews keeps saying things like, he suffered once for all. Uh, this man, after he da- offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And he, he's, not, he's not denying the ongoing priestly work of Christ, but he is saying that the atonement, the the price paid for sin is a finished work. I mean, if Christ wasn't speaking of the atonement, if that wasn't included in what he was saying when he said it is finished, uh, you actually do away with the finished work of Christ. Mm. Yeah. So believer, you can be confident that when he cries out, it is finished. He means to say, yes, that scripture is fulfilled, but scripture is fulfilled in that sin uh, has been atoned for, that he has borne our sins, that the iniquity has been laid on him, that he's interceded for the transgressors, that he's borne the sin of many. It is completed. There's nothing more that you need to add to this work. It simply needs to be received by the open, empty hand of faith. So, 
other than that, I don't have an opinion. Uh, here's another one uh, that in that same vein, and that's the Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, the cry of dereliction. We've actually spoken about this in Q and A's before, Phil. Um, but it's it's another one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, some folks will say, well, well, Jesus really wasn't genuinely forsaken by the Father. He he, he felt forsaken, but but it couldn't be that he was genuinely forsaken because. Uh, what would it mean for the, the first member of the Trinity to forsake the second member of the Trinity? Uh, they share a common essence, and so how, how can they possibly uh, be divided? And I would say, well, w- those of us who believe that that forsakenness is genuine, we don't mean to say that uh, there was some sort of ontological or essential separation between the first two members of the Trinity, that, that somehow the Son was no longer the Son, or the Trinity be- was reduced to two members for some short time because Jesus had to undergo the father's wrath, but rather that it was a relational separation that the father was not full or, 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 or uh, wrathful towards the son in him, in himself. The father loved the son, even as he poured out his wrath uh, upon him, but that he was wrathful or hostile to the son with respect to the fact that he was bearing our sins. And so there had to be some sort of relational alienation or abandonment that was ours to experience that Christ, because he is our substitute, uh, had to undergo. So yes, he's quoting scripture. Yes, he's quoting Psalm 22, one, and he's trying to say, I'm, I'm the one that David was, was pointing to, but it's not merely, Hey, let me just let you know that I'm the Davidic son here. It's no, it, the, the bitterness of hell itself is entering into my soul. As I drink the cup of the father's wrath that every ounce of the unmixed fury of God's anger that would have righteously been visited upon you and me in hell, that has to be poured out on our substitute or his death is not genuinely substitutionary. And, and, and so if you start messing with the cry of dereliction and saying, well, it's, it's just a, uh, an imagined or, or a, a felt forsakenness and not a genuine forsakenness, then, then you know what has to happen? I need to be forsaken. Because hell for me is not an imagined or felt forsakenness. Oh, I'll feel forsaken, but I'll feel forsaken because I actually am forsaken in hell. And so if I'm going to be saved from that alienation, if I'm going to be embraced to be adopted as a son, then the son who is the natural son of God has to be forsaken for me in my place. You tinker with that. I think you undo the doctrine of penal substitution. Agreed. Again, I haven't thought about this very much. No, these are, these are very truths that are near, I think, who go to the heart of the gospel and, and so are very near and dear to me. I, I know myself too sinful to, to, to readily give up aspects of the substitutionary work of Christ, because if he didn't undergo them, I've got to. And I've got no hope of surviving that. You know, it's been the case, really, you mentioned the Socinians. Uh, that was a heresy that grew up almost immediately in the wake of uh, the Protestant Reformation. The, the original Socinians uh, were contemporaries with Calvin. Uh, he corresponded with one of, this, one of the Socinus characters who, who started the heresy. Um, and since then, on a regular basis, it seems like every 20 years or so, some new error crops up. And they all do the same thing. They, they aim their barbs at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the, 
the truth that God poured out his wrath on his son, because that that's a truth that somehow seems unsavory to the carnal mind. Mm -hmm. It's what makes the gospel such a stumbling block. Uh, it, it is the offense of the gospel, the offense of the cross that this was, this represents, uh, the extreme suffering of the son at the hands of his father. And yet that is what scripture teaches. Again, going all the way back to Isaiah 53, uh, it pleased the father to bruise him. He is the one who put him to grief. Uh, and if you try to remove that difficult truth from the atoning work of Christ, you ultimately destroy Christianity. And one other comment about this is that I think that a lot of folks who make those arguments, you know, oh, John 19.30 is not talking about atonement, it's just talking about prophecy, or Matthew 27.46 not talking about real forsakenness, it's just the, the quotation of Psalm 22.1. <clears throat> I don't always think that the people who make those arguments, certainly the Socinians did, but I don't think the people who make those arguments, all of them, are trying to say that the truths that are expressed in our view of those passages are untrue. So I think that people w might say, you know what, atonement is accomplished on the cross. I just don't think that John 1930 is talking about that. Or Jesus was forsaken, but I don't think he was talking about that. My response to that is, okay, well, I'm glad that you're, you'd affirm the truth rather than reject it entirely. But sometimes I just get the feeling that people are just too stinking clever for their own good. You know, like stop, stop tinkering with the, the history of sound evangelical exegesis. What are you doing it for? I mean, it just, it just strikes of this idea that I want to be novel, that I want to pr present some sort. I want to show myself clever enough to debunk some of these myths, to bust these myths that so many people have been so foolish and naive to believe. And, and good thing that I'm here with, with my credentials and scholarship to, uh, to let everybody know what's right. I, I think that, that that's just that, that kind of thirst for novelty is, uh, is the opposite of faithfulness. I kind of appreciate somebody saying, look, I just want to be faithful to the text. And I think the entire evangelical tradition has gotten it wrong on, on uh, this particular interpretation. Okay. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're genuinely a, a slave to the scriptures and you believe in sola scriptura, I understand that you might feel the need to do that. But at the, at the very least, then you've got to stand up and say, I'm departing from the, the received evangelical history of interpretation here. And I'm going to stand up and, and, uh, and sort of plow, plow new ground. You know, if your conscience really tells you that, that that's your conviction on a particular point of the text, all right, but, but have, have the gumption to stand up and say, I'm separating myself here from Calvin and Owen and Spurgeon and Luther and the Puritans and, and uh, you know, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and, and, and the, the, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the history of men who are our heroes. Better to just simply say, you know, I'm going to humbly, you know, put myself under this text and what my theological forebears and betters have uh, have uh, presented here. And before I stand and plant my flag and say, you know what? No, they were all wrong, which sometimes you have to do before I do that. I'm going to make very sure that I can make my case clearly. All right. Got two questions on this topic. This next one. Um it's about creation and the age of the earth and uh, science and museums. And you go to a museum, you know, you, you see these, these fossils 
and the, the, the things all the time, this, this happened X million years ago um, and so on. And here's, here's our scientific method of dating these things. Uh, and obviously we believe that the earth was created somewhere between, I suppose the most conservative estimates are 6,000 years old and the, and in the, the most, uh, you know, liberal estimates in the, in the new earth camp are about 25,000 years old. So somebody says, look, I believe in a new earth, a young earth. Um, but I'm troubled still by science insisting that they're right with their dating of fossils, millions of years old. I, I read Institute of Creation Research magazine, but I feel like you really got to be a scientist to understand those articles. What are your thoughts on this? Well, there's some good organizations that help people who aren't necessarily uh, advanced scientists better understand some of the rationale why um, even even many scientifically informed people question the dogmas of evolutionary science. It, it, it's a fluid and constantly changing field of study. And uh, it's something I've been interested in since I first became a Christian. It's one of the first things I looked into. I began to uh, subscribe to material and read books from the Institute for Creation Research. These days, I think my favorite organization dealing with that is Ken Ham's Answers in Genesis. They put out a magazine and a lot of stuff that's very easy for lay people to understand. I also have a, a an acquaintance, an online acquaintance, whose hobby really is uh, uh, answering evolution from a scientific and biblical point of view. Uh, he he tweets under the name Piltdown Superman. His name is he goes by this name Cowboy Bob Sorensen. So he may not sound like a serious guy, but he is. And uh, he's also somebody who's easy to correspond with. If you have specific questions uh, about the science of, of uh, evolution and versus creation, uh, you can write to him directly. Look him up. He's online, easy to find. Cowboy Bob Sorensen, S-O-R-E-N-S-E-N. Cowboy Bob Sorensen. I think, I think he does a podcast, too. I've heard him on podcasts. Uh, clever guy, reads everything on the subject, and he has a real gift for making it understandable to lay people. So uh, if this is something that particularly troubles you, look up Cowboy Bob Sorensen, built down Superman. And I've heard great things about the ministry of Jason Lyle, L-I-L-E. Yeah, another, another really sharp guy, young guy. Yeah. Um, but in general, I would say that, you know, Look, the reality is, is that these folks um, who do the, the dating of the, of the fossils in the old earth, they come with uh, stated, maybe, maybe sometimes unstated, but most of them stated presuppositions against supernaturalism. So in other words, they, they believe their discipline is, is necessarily um, naturalistic. Like we're, we're not concerning ourselves with supernatural theories of the origin and age of the universe. Um, we, we're, we're, we're flat out saying that since we can't test and observe uh, a supernatural being speaking the world into existence, therefore that lies outside the domain of our discipline. And so uh, we're only dealing within the boundaries of naturalistic explanations, which is basically to assume what they're trying to prove. I mean, they're, they're assuming 
that the world is merely natural. They haven't observed evolution either. Certainly not the macro evolution of Darwinian uh, theory, right? The, the notion that, that a, a, some species has changed into another species. You say, well, where have you tested and seen that? And they say, well, you know, the stickleback fish, you know, became a different kind of fish or the goldfinches got longer or shorter beaks or whatever it was. And it's like, okay, but the birds still were birds and the fish were still fish. It's not that a bird became a fish or that a fish became a man, right? Where have you observed that? And they say, oh, we haven't observed that because it takes millions and millions and millions of years. So, okay, then on your own principles then of the scientific method of something that has to be testable and observable, you're, you're stating that macroevolution is just as much outside the bounds of your discipline as is creationism because you've not tested or observed macroevolution either. So understand that the folks who, who do the, the dating and all that stuff and, and work for those museums and, and fancy themselves, you know, the, the archaeologists, paleontologists, and so on, you know, that they're, they're coming with an a priori assumption uh, that God could not have done this. And when you start with that, you know, you're going to sound really, really, um, what's the right word, really erudite, and, uh, and highfalutin in your explanations of the science, but you, you've basically said, I'm going to shut my eyes to the one thing that I have to be looking at as I engage in, in uh, inquiry on this matter. And the reality is the most valid, the most reliable source about the, the creation of the world is from the creator, and he's given it to us in the pages of scripture. And so we should put our confidence in, in that uh, rather than um, the wisdom of the world that that is foolishness in the eyes of God. Hey, Phil, on, along those lines, somebody from the Eagle Rock study asks, how does my role as a layman fit with the responsibility to accurately handle the word of truth? Second Timothy 2.15. The majority of lay people will never learn Greek or Hebrew. Without formal training, how can Christians know what the text says and means? Are English translations sufficient? I think that's an interesting question because you sort of live in both worlds. You're someone who's not had the formal seminary training, but you do. And so technically you're a layman, right? Um, but you do uh, shepherd and preach and, and teach. Uh, yeah, actually, though, I live in the same world as a person who asked that question. I don't know Greek or Hebrew. I, I, I can read uh, Greek words and look up their meaning and all that, but I couldn't take a, a Greek text and translate it. I can't do that. Uh, and what that means is in order to handle the word of God correctly and carefully, you, you have to do a lot more thorough, careful study. I'm dependent on people who do know Greek and uh, I wouldn't preach on a text without reading what they've had to say about it. Uh, the, the grammar, the construction, the meaning of the words, all of those things. I don't pretend to be an expert and I, and I don't think you need to be a, an expert is a tra an English translation sufficient? I think that was the question that came out of that. And my answer would be, for most things, yes. It's not, you know, sufficient if uh, it, it, it's not, it's not sufficient if your goal is to do uh, a thorough word-by-word -word exegesis, you know, of the original text. You're going to have to read uh, somebody who does know the languages and what they've said about the text in order to get there. But assuming you have the study aids and all that, it's certainly sufficient 
to understand the essential meaning of God's word and, and teach it to others. You don't have to know, you don't have to be an expert in Greek and Hebrew uh, in order to do that adequately for most people. I wouldn't teach seminary. I've never, never pretended to be able to teach on that level, but I can make sense of what scripture says. And uh, I know the places to go to find out what the original text says and the nuances of the language. And, and um, what it means is you just have to do a little extra careful study if you're going to teach. I think that's a good, good answer. I would just say that as somebody who does, read Greek and, and know Hebrew, not as well as I know Greek, but uh, to have a facility uh, in, in the languages, I would tell you that the scriptures, the English translations are magnificently uh, reliable, especially the, the, the more formal equivalent ones like the New American Standard, the ESV, the uh, New King James and things like that. Um, you know, less so maybe with the NIV or the New Living Translation or, or certainly the message or something like that, which are, are loose paraphrases and, and more dynamic equivalent translations. But, the, you know, in the more conservative formal equivalent translations, you've got folks who are really, really brilliant thinking through how to represent accurately um, the Greek to, to English and the Hebrew to English. And, uh, and I would tell you that you should have a, an, an extreme degree of confidence that, that the, the, the English text you hold in your hand is the word of God. Now, of course, God didn't write it in English. He didn't inspire it in English. And so in any case, there's going to be some things that get lost in translation. But I would tell you that there's no key doctrine that, uh, you know, sort of of Christianity that gets upended by some sort of uh, veil that lies over the the english text because you don't know the original there's going to be different takes on it and you know if you you're going to wade into a particular debate on a particular verse you're going to have to do the extra work like phil's saying but you should feel very confident in your english translation and that if you master the bible in english that you will know god's word and that he will have had a sanctifying influence on your mind and your heart and that you will be able to 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 test and approve what the will of god is that you'll be able to obey the way that he calls you to obey so I think you should have, uh, you should be encouraged. So I've got an unsaved friend or family member who tells me not to pray for them because they're just so hostile against Christianity that uh, they don't want me to even pray. It's sort of spitefully telling me don't pray for me. Would you pray for that person anyway? I would. If it's someone I loved, yeah. I know there's, a, there's one verse in scripture that says, um, you know, somebody's committed, if somebody's committed the sin unto death, and uh, it's the Apostle John says, I do not say that you should pray for him. It doesn't really forbid us to pray for them either. Uh, and I don't think you're wasting your time. I've, I've told the told the story many times of Irene Babin, who many people in Grace Life knew because she was, she was a Grace Life member uh, until she died. When I first met Irene, she was absolutely hostile to not only to the gospel, but especially to Grace Church. She lived uh, right next door to the um, triangular parking lot to the north of Roscoe. And we moved in next door to her, but we had the house exactly adjacent to her. And um, I, I learned that she was the one 
who, when Grace Church was building the, the when, when they put in those parking lots and all that, she petitioned, she, she got up a petition of the neighbors to forbid any exit from that north parking lot onto the side street. So there was only one exit onto Roscoe for years, which made that parking lot very inconvenient for anyone who would use it. But she didn't want the traffic going by her house. And um, when, when we moved in there and she discovered that I was employed at the time by Grace Church, I was on the payroll of the church. Uh, the disappointment was visible on her face. And um, we tried a few times to share the gospel with her, but she was like, I don't want to hear it. Don't even talk to me about it. Uh, and yet we prayed for her for years and all that. And we lived there for nearly a decade uh, and moved away. Uh, she and her husband were um, devoted Roman Catholics. And uh, about two or three years after we moved away from there, uh, her husband died and went to his funeral. It's the only time I've ever been to a Catholic mass. And I saw Irene and hugged her and said, I'm sorry. And, you know, we'll miss him too. And all that. And I, and as we walked away, I told Darlene, that's probably the last time we'll ever see Irene. Uh, Cause we had moved out of the neighborhood. I didn't expect to see her, but um, a group of seminary students moved into that house after we moved out and they were relentless in uh, trying to evangelize her. And uh, one of them was Andy. Many of you know Andy from Sri Lanka. He's moved back to Sri Lanka. Uh, but he ultimately led her to Christ. And, uh, and I didn't know anything about it. I came to church on one Sunday morning, and there she was uh, in the plaza between the buildings. And she comes walking towards me, and I said, Irene, what are you doing here? Because all the years we lived there, she loved our kids and she would come to grace if the kids were singing in a concert or something like that. But if there was any preaching, she wouldn't come or she would leave before the preaching. Uh, and here she is on a Sunday morning. I said, Irene, what are you doing here? And she said, Phil, I've been saved and I want you to baptize me. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I gave up praying for you years ago. <laughs> and, uh, so she's, she's always been a reminder to me don't give up praying for someone and you know, you sow the seed and somebody else waters and ultimately God gives the harvest. Uh, so I, I would never counsel anybody not to pray for a certain person, especially a loved one. I would say, if it's on your heart to pray for them, pray for them. You don't have to tell him you're praying for him. And there may come a time when he, he might even ask you to pray for him. If, if the Lord brings him to a point of need. Uh, so Yeah. Pray for him, even if he says not to. That's my advice. I agree. Okay, here's someone says, sometimes I do not want to obey a command at all, such as showing brotherly affection to someone when I feel no affection and maybe even hatred for them. How are we to understand the call to obey if we are only obeying with our actions, but our heart is not in conformity? Is it better not to try to obey and be judged a hypocrite? This is a question well, that I've thought a lot about. I've written a book basically. Yeah, you've written about it. Yeah. You answer this one while I go refill my water. Okay, go for it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, no, I, so my answer to this is that, that all true obedience is heart obedience. And that obedience that uh, kind of goes through the motions formally 
outwardly, externally, but does not spring from the kind of heart that we're commanded to have in doing the external duties, is itself sinful. Now, it's the question sort of asks, the question that everybody always asks is, well, if I don't feel like obeying, should I not even obey my external duties until I feel like it? My answer to that question is no. You should always obey as much as you can, right? But what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't obey your external duty while failing to obey your internal heart duties and then walk away from the scenario saying, patting yourself on the back for being a good, dutiful you know, slave, follower of Jesus. You should do your external duty as best as you can possibly muster your willpower to do it, but then you should repent of not having the heart to do the duty that you are required to do with the joy and the gladness that, that ought to accompany obedience. I mean, Jesus has not called us to commands that are burdensome. First John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. So if we find them burdensome, something is wrong with us. And so if we find them burdensome and we just go ahead and do them anyway and muscle them down in the strength of our willpower, we should feel like we should feel worried by that. We should realize something is wrong here because my father tells me I should enjoy uh, following him and obeying him in this thing. And I hate it or I, I don't want it anyway. So the example that I always give with this is second Corinthians nine, seven, God loves a cheerful giver. Okay. What that, what's that saying is that, is that God one is, is certainly owed uh, your, your offerings of the first fruits of your, of your increase uh, because he's the one who prospers you in all your work and everything that you have financially you have from him. And he asks you to worship him by giving a measure of that to him via, you know, the supporting of, of the work of the church. But in Second Corinthians 9, 7, it says that God doesn't just love a giver, a dutiful, obedient giver, but he loves a cheerful giver. So there's the external duty to give money to support the work of the church that you're a member of. And then there's the internal duty of giving that cheerfully. So what happens if every Sunday you, you get the, the little sack that gets passed and it comes to your, your place in the pew and you're, you got your check and you're ready to give it, but you're, you're, you're strapped, you're, you're, you know, you're feeling the, the weight of, of financial burden. And so your heart is, is grumbling. It's not eagerly and willingly and cheerfully uh, giving to the work of the Lord in that place. Well, what should you do? Well, I'm going to say you shouldn't compound your internal disobedience, your lack of cheerfulness, with external disobedience, your lack of giving. I think you should do your external duty of giving, but repent of the lack of you're, you're doing the internal duty of not giving cheerfully. If you give, but you don't give cheerfully, You've obeyed your external duty to give, but you've not obeyed your internal duty to give cheerfully. And so you have to recognize that all genuine obedience is heart obedience. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far, are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You can, you can speak and go through the motions and be disobeying Christ because your heart is far from you can, you can forgive. Oh, yeah, sure, I forgive you. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 18, 35? 
so also will my father do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. So you can't be hypocritical in your quote-unquote obedience. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't do your external duty until you feel like it, but it doesn't. It also does not mean that you should count yourself as having obeyed when your heart's not where it is. Do your external duty if, by, by the brute force of your willpower if you have to, but then go to the Lord and say, Lord, why is my heart so backward? Forgive me for, for not loving your law, for not delighting in walking in your way. Forgive me, my, I'm, so, I'm so backward and, 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 and wrong and, and just turned in on myself. My, my, my perspective is so out of whack. My heart is so where it not needs to be that I need your grace. Forgive me for that sin and give me the heart next time. Give me the heart to obey with joy. Do you have anything to add, Phil? No, I'm trying to change my uh, earphones because they ran out of battery. And... Oh. So, yeah. So you, tr- you just trust me. We'll head to the next question. <laughs> you know, I heard you. I, okay, good. I agree with you. All right. Uh, here's, here's the next question. When listening to sermons, knowing that pastors and elders can be influential, should we take the time to separate personal opinions that may be stated from the scripture reference given for the message? So how, yes. how do we discern between a pastor's or a preacher's personal opinion and the scripture itself? Well, that's exactly what it means to, to be like the Bereans who compared the word of God to see if these things are so. Um, yeah, I don't ask you to take my word for anything. If, if I ever say anything that sounds, uh, um, that challenges you, I, you, you should examine the word of God to see if it's true. And if it's not, if there's no biblical basis for something I say, then you have my permission to write it off as my personal opinion. So how do you, how do you though guard against the, the person who just wants to stay away from the benefit of the exhortation and will convince themselves that what you've said isn't biblical uh, and therefore just feel like he can go on. Like say you're exhorting someone about, the need for formal church membership, for example, right? You know, that, that, you, that there is actually a biblical uh, requirement, maybe not explicitly, but it certainly implicitly, to join yourself formally to the, to a, the local church. Say somebody's there and they're just like, eh, you know, I, I get it, but I just don't buy it. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and leave that off. Yeah, I mean, then he's got a problem, um, uh, you know, I don't know, arrogance or whatever. Uh, I... On, on something like that, that uh, admittedly, I mean, that's a good example of an issue that you, you won't find a convenient proof text, but if, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, you can tell that they kept track of who was in the church. I mean, there's no way to, to excommunicate somebody if, if there's no membership. There's no, there's no basis for the church to come together. That's the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and he contrasts the church coming together with you when you're in your houses. So it seems obvious to me that there was some meeting place for the church in Corinth that wasn't in somebody's house. Um, and, and, um, they knew who, who was in and, and he counsels them in second Corinthians to put a man out of their fellowship. Uh, all of that implies membership, but you, you can't find a convenient proof text that is going to talk about membership roles and, you know, 
whatever. So that's one of those issues where I, if somebody didn't immediately respond to my arguments or whatever, I would encourage him to keep studying the issue. If he's just closed minded, he's not going to do that. Uh, and uh, as long as I know he's studying and, and his mind is open to what scripture teaches, then I just want to encourage him in that direction and acknowledge that, you know, I can't give you a proof text on this, but I think it is clear. This is what scripture's teaching. Uh, it, if he's simply not open to correction on it, and he doesn't care to study it anymore. Then uh, I would say that's a sign of a, uh, of a foolish person. Number one, that's exactly how Proverbs would describe him as a fool. Uh, someone who's not responsive to counsel or correction. Um, and ultimately, uh, I would expect a person like that to drift away. That That's inevitably what happens. Yeah, I, I would say that, of course, of course, we, we don't want you to just take everything that we say, even when it is uh, manifestly a biblical interpretation issue, you know, we don't want you to just take our word for it. We, we want, we, we labor. I know that from, for me, I really work hard. And this is sometimes why I, I go too long at trying to demonstrate what my, what I'm asking you to believe from the text. So you can see the connections that, that I saw that led me to that conclusion. Cause I never want you to say, well, I believe it because Mike teaches it. I want you to say, I, I believe it because Mike showed me where those connections were in scripture that, that, that that's what God says. And so I actually, and I think Phil would agree that both of us, I think work hard at not putting our opinions in our sermons. And pastor John does the same thing. He, he he's talked about how he's almost, he, he's very hesitant to even use the first person at all uh, where he says, I, this, or, or, or I believe that, or I think that we are very uh, cognizant of trying not to put our, our personal opinions in there. If we're saying something in a sermon or even in a Q and a, it's because we believe that the biblical scriptures properly interpreted uh, and, uh, and brought to bear on a particular issue require this particular direction, direction or directive. Um, and so if you're, if you're sitting there and saying, you know, you know, yeah, Mike said that, but I think that's just probably his opinion. Like, you know, I don't know that I'm required to, to buy that from scripture. I would just tell you to make sure that make examine yourself and make sure that you're not just trying to dismiss the, the instruction and the counsel and the exhortation of your pastors because your heart is rebellious like mine and doesn't want the benefit of, of biblical instruction and the, the cutting away of the flesh and the pruning that, that is painful. And, and me personally, I would say that if you think that there's something that you hear me say at the very least repeatedly, if I make a point of something that you, you, you hear keeps coming up in my preaching, that you're apt to say, well, that's his opinion. It's not necessarily a conviction that he's trying to instill in us from scripture. I'd say, come talk to me about it. Just say, hey, when you're saying this, are you, are you saying that's what the Bible requires us to believe? Or are you saying you're giving your opinion in the matter? And I'd be happy to chat with you just, just to clear it up. And then we don't have to argue about the issue right there, but it's best if you know at the very least that uh, I intend or don't intend that issue to be a matter of opinion or, or versus, versus conviction. Yeah. When I'm giving a personal opinion, I, I go out of my way to try to say so. I try to remember always to say that if I say something dogmatically, uh, it's, it's usually because, 
because I believe I can back this up with scripture. And so if you disagree with me, let's talk. Um, but um, if it's my opinion, and, and this is something I've learned from John MacArthur and he's influenced me in, I, I try to keep my personal opinions uh, to a minimum in sermons. You know, I edit John's books and uh, years ago I learned when I, when, uh, when I would submit a manuscript to him, if it had anything in there where he had said, I believe this, or I think that, uh, he would always cross it out. Like he didn't want in a book, especially, uh, to be giving his personal opinions, uh, or, or private beliefs. He, if he couldn't, if he couldn't substantiate it by scripture, then what's the point in saying it? Well, there are a lot of questions left, but I think we've, uh, we've run out of time for tonight. And that's a good sign. We want more questions and uh, we'll be uh, ready to do this at another time in the coming, in the coming days. We'll let you know exactly when any closing comments, Phil. No, last week a question came up about uh, virtual communion. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and I gave sort of an off the cuff opinion. I've written a couple of paragraphs on that. I'm going to put it on the Facebook, uh, the Grace Life Facebook page. So so whoever asked that question, if you're interested in maybe a more carefully worded rationale, why we don't uh, practice communion privately in our homes, I'll, uh, I'll put that online. Great. Well, we continue to miss you and we continue to uh, pray for you. And uh, again, like we said before, if, if you're one of those who needs anything, even if it's just, I want to talk with you guys. I just want you to pray for me. Um, please uh, do contact us. We will make it a, a priority uh, to, to meet with you and to, to speak with you. It's really our joy as pastors to do that. So um, it's tough to do that with 500 people, but you know, for the ones who are saying, Hey, I, I need that right now. Uh, we're very much uh, eager to, to hear from you and uh, praise God. The reports from everybody that we've heard have, have been very, very positive. We've never heard of anybody in, dire need. We've heard of one report of somebody in our fellowship group or related to our fellowship group contracting the virus, but they're, uh, you know, taking the proper precautions and getting treated and, and uh, no, no life threatening situations that we know of yet. Um, But yeah, please be praying for one another. Uh, Be calling one another, checking in on one another, uh, doing the one another's as best you can from, uh, from your, your own isolated spot. And if you need anything, please, please let us know. With that, I think we can say good night. Yeah. And watch this space when we decide uh, when we're going to be back. It won't be next Sunday night at this time because we want to hear what John MacArthur has to say. Right. So, um, but watch this space when we decide when we're going to do it, we'll put it up. Could be midweek, could be Friday night. Uh, we'll, we'll sort of, take a survey of the Bible study leaders and see what they think is a good time to do it. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com.